I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. You're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco. All things reptile related. And the people who love them. As part of the Repeticulture Network. My internet plays this game with me. I'm I'm gonna. I don't know what I'll do. I'll do right. something. We'll keep it going. Got rid of CenturyLink, so this wouldn't happen. Yeah, well, and it's happening. It's happening. And we're live. When will then be now? Soon. Uh-oh. What are you owing? Is it? Can you still hear me? Okay. Oh yeah, you're. You sound. Beautiful. I don't know because I y'all froze up and then I can still hear you. No, we're good, man. We're good. We're live. We're forty seconds in. Okay. Sure snakes are. and stogies. This is snakes and stogies episode one thirty four. Is there a lag? No. Okay. Uh, I think there is a lag on your end. Carry on the intro. <laughs> is there is there a lag? I don't know. I can't tell. I don't think there is. Do you want to keep going? You were doing such a good job. Yeah. Yeah. This Snake Stogies episode one thirty four. Uh, my name's Justin. I got a problem with my internet. Um, this episode is brought to you by BlackBoxCages.com. Check them out. Facebook, Instagram. Right? Nah, I can't. Center your screen, people. Right there. Uh, check them out. Uh, like I said, Facebook, Instagram, blackboxcages.com. That's right. Right up top. Get you a rat. Get you a cage. Treat yourself. Uh, and then Puget Sound Pythons, the good, fine folks of Jeff and Kendra, up in the Pacific Northwest uh, give them a follow Facebook, Instagram as well. They have some stuff, I believe, that will be being posted for sale soon. I don't know exactly when or what, but they've been busy with some uh, some neonate action. So check them out. And uh, yeah. Rock so and roll. We are here this week to talk about some snake fungal disease. Uh, we have Alex Romer with us. He was actually one of the first guests on THP a couple years ago. So we've been in communication here and there since. And uh, he hit me up a while back, actually, about doing a, a fungal disease episode. And I figured that's something that really you don't hear about as much anymore. I know at one point it was uh, in the headlines a good bit uh, social on social media and, and news outlets and things like that. Uh, but it seems like it's kind of disappeared from the from the media circle. So I figured we'd talk about it a little bit, uh, yeah. see sort of what's new, any updates there. Uh, I believe we're going to be joined by Dr. Donald Walker here shortly, uh, who is also working with Alex on, on studying this. And It's good stuff, man. Am I still lagging? It's good stuff. Yeah, you're lagging a little bit. You sound good, though. Don't worry about it. Keep going. I must be. Oh, yeah. Snake cheese. Yes. Billy Jenkins, always painting a vivid picture. What are you smoking tonight? 
tonight I had a customer come by my shop and he was so happy that with his stuff that he gave me a 601 La Bomba. So I don't even know what size this is. It's a really, really long son of a gun. But uh, that's what we're, we're, we're driving. Lonsdale. What are you smoking? Romacraft Cro-Magnon. Nice. Oro. You're a little fuzzy, but we can see that band. I'm thinking it has to do something with StreamYard because we have not had this issue at all. And now all of a sudden it's struggling. And I Are you sure it's not, you know, Cassidy Smith? I'm fairly certain it's not Cassidy Smith because nothing's changed. Okay. So I don't know. We'll, well roll with it and see what happens. As long as Alex and I look as good as we do right now, that's all that matters. Yeah, the difference between this and Saturday night when me and Jake were doing this live is like like you're not here, so you can if if I'm in and out constantly, you can at least Yeah, yeah. Carry it. Yeah. But and right now you're crystal clear both visually and audio, so yeah. Alex, are you imbibing in any adult vices this evening? Uh, I'm sitting in my office at work, actually. It's where I thought I would get the best internet connection, so unfortunately not. <laughs> that is no excuse at all. You're, you're off the clock, man. You don't have like a fifth of bourbon in the desk drawer or something? Isn't that what all you science guys have? No, I'm not that cool, unfortunately. Uh, you could be with that mustache. You could be. Maybe once I get tenure, you know? <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Yeah. There's, just a, there's just a little little snifter of gin in that, in that keyboard drawer. <laughs> oh, man. Well, again, welcome back to the show, man. It's good stuff. Thank you. And uh, let's do this. Smitty, as you light that cigar, how's babies? How's, you know, those Texas beauties that you got? Uh, they're large and in charge and angry. And uh, I am very much looking forward to getting them out of my house. They're pretty snakes, but I, I'm I'm officially sort of at the the point where I'm like, uh, it's kind of like candy corn. I can have it once a year and be good. That's where I'm at with thorn scrubs. So, yeah, hatched out the five. They're cool. Of course, Chris doesn't want any of them. He's like you, son of a bitch. <laughs> he <laughs> says well, why would he? I don't, he? I don't know. He pawned the parents off on you. He did. <laughs> uh, well, actually, the parents are getting shipped off later this week. So, um, oh, you're that you're they're that pleased with them. <laughs> yep, uh, gonna get babies eaten, which I don't see being an issue. Uh, I mean, they could be eating fuzzies like straight out of the out of the egg. They're they're huge, gigantic. Uh, hey, other than that, I mean, they're 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 just angry little thorn scrubs. So, there's the that'll happen. Thing. Hello. Was ist los, Herr Doktor? Oh no, is he lagging now? Why you got to make it weird, Phil? I just met the guy. I got to be weird. I'm lagging. Patrick yeah, said yeah, Streamyard yeah, has been funky on Aquarium live streams lately, so it is likely a, a Streamyard problem. Okay, fair enough. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. It was doing so good for so long, and they decided to start tinkering with it i know they gotta like update things y'all there and, uh, 
Can you hear yep. me? Yep. Yes. Yes, sir. Okay. How you doing? Us. I can. Really sorry I got the time Excellent. zone wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> Quite all right. Quite all right. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, do you guys want to just jump right into this, or do you want to do some? Well, why don't we do some introductions first? You know, um, whichever one of you guys wants to go first, give a little bit about yourself and refresh the listeners, and, and kind of give a little uh, history of how you got where you are. Well, Donnie's the professor. I feel like he should go first. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So, um, my name is Donnie Walker. Um, I completed my PhD at Rutgers University. Um, actually, did my undergrad at the same uh, university that Alex uh, went to, uh, SUNY ESF. Um, I'm traditionally trained as a mycologist, but have I've started to work in microbial ecology um, for probably maybe the last 10 years or so. Um, I've been studying the snake fungal disease system for approximately seven to eight years now. Wow, that's awesome. Very cool. So are you a, a herper by, by, by nature, or did you kind of become one because of the fungi? Yeah, you know, kind of. Uh, I met some really interesting people along the way that convinced me to study herps. I should run and chase after them in the field and study the microbiomes and the different fungi bacteria that live on their skin and in their gut. So uh, I am not traditionally trained as a herpetologist. In fact, I've never actually had a herpetology course before. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love Chase Hatfield. It's a good time. That's great, man. The field work is, is addictive when you're captivated. You know what I mean? You know, I, it's, sure is. you've got when you when you're working with awesome animals i imagine it just gets better and better and you know even if you're not that into the animals themselves it's still the hunt of it that i think is a lot of fun on its own and you're hunting for for multiple things you're hunting for for the fungi and for the the animals so like it's it's awesome it's so true yeah to be honest, i mean i do i suppose do love our hosts love to flip logs and catch cool salamanders and chase after frogs and ponds and the occasional snake capture uh, i mainly let alex do that type of work but yeah <laughs> I, I enjoy it definitely yeah how do how alex how do you tie into the the thing how would you get involved in in the sfd stuff yeah so it's um it's kind of funny that we're talking now because when you guys first spoke to me, it was like right when I had moved to Tennessee to start my master's work, which is when I also had just started working with Donnie. Um, and so I worked with Donnie for two years to get my master's degree um, studying snake fungal disease. Um, and then I kind of bumped around for a little bit after I got my master's. I worked as a technician at a couple of positions uh, where they were doing um, research on cancer. I worked as an intern at the Chattanooga Zoo for a semester. Um, and then ultimately Donnie got back to me and was like, uh, would you like to come back to work for the lab, um, as a lab manager? And so that's what I'm doing now. 
Uh, and so I used to work on snake fungal disease, but I also, we work on a couple other projects. So we're also working on a fungus that lives um, wi widely in the gut of amphibians, reptiles that eat insects called Psidiobolus. And so that's when Donnie talks about us being in the field and capturing, you know, frogs and salamanders and snakes and that kind of thing. Um, that's uh, something that we do for as part of that project. Uh, we do still opportunistically collect samples for snake fungal disease and things like that. Um, so we do kind of, our lab in general works on that interface of like um, understanding the microbiology of reptiles and amphibians for most of our projects. Yeah, Alex just got out of the field probably about, I'm guessing 20, 30 minutes ago. About an hour, <laughs> just enough time to catch a shower and look for yeah. the spot. Nice, nice. Did <laughs> you catch great. any wood frogs? No, just release the ones I had. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. Super cool, guys. Super cool. Yeah, so snake fungal disease, that was something that, that I remember reading a lot about at least a couple of years ago within inside of the last three or five, I think, is when it was kind of, there was, I guess, a borderline sort of panic about it. Um, whether that was sort of just an initial thing or if it is still very much so a problem, I, I don't know. Uh, but we can sort of get into, I guess, what it is. Is it a single fungus? Is it sort of a family, you know, in comparison to kind of like the Nido stuff? I know they're completely different, but is it more of like a group of fungi that are doing it? Is it just a single one? Sort of what's the the explanation of what it is and what it does and why it's such a problem? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So the term snake fungal disease kind of comes from like the hazy origins of um, the origin of that disease. So um, it was around like 2008, 2011 that um, snake fungal disease or a fungal disease started to be documented in pit vipers, mostly in the northern United States. So like Timber rattlesnakes in the northeastern United States, Massasaugas, um, more in the Midwestern United States. And it was unclear what was causing these either dermatitis or lesions or facial swelling. Uh, and so it wasn't known, was this being caused by one pathogen? Was this being caused by multiple pathogens? But it was understood that it was being caused by a fungal pathogen. So that's why it was assigned the term snake fungal disease, because that was basically the finest like etiological agent that could be assigned to the disease at that time. Um, and since then, there's just been some like taxonomic reassignments of the pathogen that causes snake fungal disease. But we now know that it's caused by a fungus, Aphidiomyces aphidicola, um, and it's, it's caused by a single pathogen, that organism. Uh, and so there's recently been a push to refer to it as aphidiomycosis in place of snake fungal disease as a result of the fact that we know it's caused by this particular fungus as opposed to kind of just like a broader fungal category. Um, and whether that should, whether it should be renamed or not, I think is um, there's a debate to be had there because people generally know this disease as snake fungal disease, uh, whereas aphidiomycosis is a more specific term, but perhaps disconnects people from some of the uh, earlier documentations of the disease. Yeah, it's been thought of as uh, and called hibernation blisters or hibernation sores quite often. I think by by herpetologists. Uh, of the past, uh, before Ophidiomyces was named and documented. Um, so herpetologists used to document this when snakes would come out of hibernation and they, there'd be facial lesions, large granulomas, just necrotic skin, um, just odd looking disconfigurations uh, on the animal. 
Yeah, Phil, do you have? Can you pull up a picture of it? I would. I'm afraid that if I pull up a picture and ask this thing to yeah. do anything other than what I'm doing, it might explode and kick me. Out. I uh, I actually <laughs> was going to try to, and then my screen started lagging, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> Let me let me try and let me try and pull something up. Yeah, it's pretty brutal, pretty gruesome. Um, oftentimes happens on the head and the eyes of the animal. Mm-hmm. Um, what people think, it, not totally certain that it causes death, but perhaps could uh, result in uh, issues with the animal being able to see and sense, uh, predators. Um, oftentimes it's thought that the animals lay out and, uh, mm-hmm. bask in the sun to attempt to elicit a febrile response and suppress the pathogen. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty gnarly. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly. Definitely. And, and when they can't see, then unfortunately they succumb to predation. Mm-hmm. And I would honestly say a picture like that is probably more typical of what you see on most snakes in the field. So like, even though like something like what you have the cursor over right now is like, where you'll see that on headlines where it's an animal that like is extremely disfigured. Yeah. It's got um, like the they, elephant man thing going on. Right. It's, it's very rare to see an animal like that in the wild. Uh, it's much more common to see perhaps something like that uh, or perhaps even a little less severe than that on most animals. Um, yeah. Uh, to be which, honest, I think, Oh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah. I was just going to say when, so um, most studies that look at animals through time find that there isn't significant mortality in the field associated with the snake fungal disease. Um, like, and there are studies. So for example, um, in one of the initial inoculation trials with the Phidiomyces where they attempted to determine, is this the actual fungus causing snake fungal disease? I think they had a, a 40% mortality rate, uh, but that was also with um, five snakes. Uh, and so mm-hmm. there was a concern that it could be causing high levels of mortality. Um, but when you actually track animals in the landscape through time, it doesn't necessarily seem to be killing animals outright. Uh, and often animals that do have severe lesions when they're followed through time, do their infections kind of uh, clear over time and perhaps uh, do also get more severe over time. Uh, but it's not like a linear progression to uh, death or severe disease. Like it might be uh, is presumed if you like look at pictures online. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the way the news worded it, it, it made it sound like it was like the chytrid of snakes, where it was like anything that gets it is is toast, you know, it's taking over everything, everything's dying, like, they really, I mean, it's the news, so I kind of expect it, but they, they really made it seem like it was the end of, end of times for a lot of species. Yeah, to be honest, I think we just don't quite know, um, you know, this, this fungus has really only been studied in detail for probably the last 10 to 12 years. Um, So not trying to downplay it, it could tentatively be problematic, but um, I think it's thought that it's oftentimes like opportunistic, like secondary infection by maybe different bacteria or alternatively fungi that cause these snakes to die or succumb to predation or, or, or something like that. Yeah. To be honest, like we've sampled like upwards of a thousand snakes in the field now, and I've only really seen really bad snake fungal disease, like those nasty pictures that you're showing maybe two or three times. Uh, I think these animals are probably getting picked off by predators long before they look real real bad like that. Does it have any effect on sort of their... Uh, what's the damn word? Um, metabolism? Like, does it does it 
snakes that have it are they more lethargic is there any difference in terms of that or is it literally just like a physical like i can't see what's going on kind of thing so um craig lind and uh aguilero i believe is the other um investigator from florida do work on pygmy rattlesnakes there um and so they've done a lot of work on um sublethal consequences of snake fungal disease in that those populations um and so um one study that in particular that comes to mind is they found that uh, infection with snake fungal disease was associated with increased meta basal metabolic rate. So just having snake fungal disease, those animals had higher just resting metabolism. And also they had increased water loss compared to animals that didn't have snake fungal disease. Um, they also found that uh, snakes that had snake fungal disease males during um, the end of the uh, end of the summer spermatogenesis when they're getting ready to breed and during the actual breeding season had lower testosterone than males that didn't have snake fungal disease and females had lower levels of the um, uh, pheromone or hormone that stimulates vitalogenesis um, during spring when they should be producing um, embryos. So um, those, even though snake fungal disease might not be killing snakes outright in all cases, it definitely has sublethal consequences that are probably relevant to the host. And two of the uh, more re somewhat recent studies that were published that actually fulfilled Koch's postulates to basically show like the fungus does cause this disease and does result in some lethal effects uh, to snakes. Uh, they found that there were issues with like writing reflex and um, the snakes were like laying out in the open more often than they typically would be undercover objects. And a variety of other behavioral issues uh, that that they documented. Do do you guys feel that that's some kind of association with them attempting to heal themselves by you know getting sunlight or raising body temperature? UV. Yeah. Yeah, Alex, you can talk about some of the modeling that you did with Cody's work. Yeah. Um, so there's a. a there's something called the febrile response in reptiles. You guys might already be familiar with it, but it's the idea that um, I'm not. Oh, okay. Um, that reptiles will um, raise their body temperature using their external environment as opposed to like endothermic mechanisms when they're uh, sick to fight disease more effectively. So uh, yes, it's kind of like, like how we have a fever. Exactly. But yeah. instead of doing it with their metabolism, they do it by like maybe basking at a higher temperature or something like that. Uh, and so that was, um, for example, it, when snake fungal disease was still relatively new, they followed a couple of rattlesnakes uh, and timber rattlesnakes in the Northeast that had um, this fungal dermatitis um, and found that they were basking out in the open later in the year at times it seemed inappropriate. Um, and so there have been these anecdotal reports that like snakes with snake fungal disease tend to bask in like later times of the year, times that seem inappropriate. And so perhaps they're attempting this febrile response. And um, our lab uh, about two and a half years ago, two years ago, I think at this point with the, um, Cody Godwin and Chris Murray, who's now at Louisiana State University, um, had water snake or ribbon snakes um, shipped to us from a wholesaler and we were gonna inoculate them and then put them on a thermal gradient. So that way we could see, uh, did snake fungal disease have an effect on their preferred basking temperature? Um, but actually very relevant to this podcast. Um, so this comes from um, an animal wholesaler. These animals could have potentially gone into the hobby uh, but when we got them, they had snake fungal disease. Uh, and so that kind of put a wrench into our experiment. And so ultimately we wound up looking at kind of um, different categories of disease. So for example, like 
animals that um, already had disease and we inoculated versus animals that had never had disease that we inoculated. So like a naive versus a um, uh, the conditioned immune response and things like that. Uh, and the biggest difference that we saw in the gradient was that those animals that had already had disease and then we gave them a second dose of disease um, found a more stable, they found a substrate temperature that they wanted faster and they were more stable at like, this is the temperature that I want to be on than those animals that had never seen disease before. Uh, whereas we didn't necessarily find a difference between those animals that um, weren't inoculated and those that were inoculated. Um, so, you know, it's worth, that's, there haven't been a ton of studies on that particular subject. It would be interesting to see more people do that experiment and see what results they get. Um, but I think there's definitely uh, anecdotal evidence and some experimental evidence that suggests that snake fungal disease does have effects on how snakes are basking. It was a bit unexpected. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, typical in the sciences. Everything about it was unexpected, including <laughs> when we got a bag full of snakes and yeah. half of them had snake fungal disease. Now, was that, is this something that is regional where for example the snakes that you got from the wholesaler may have been south american and it's obviously timbers are native to north america is it something that may have gotten loose into the uh, local population or is it something that's just from uh crappy conditions and bad husbandry yeah that's a good that's a great point so these these snakes um were collected in florida because they're they were ribbon snakes um but in terms of where the actual um like where they collected disease from. Um, my guess is that it would be from snake fungal disease that is um, like found in that area of the country. Um, there was a recent paper that showed that there are different clades of snake fungal disease. So basically, depending on where you are in the country, snake fungal disease in that area can be more closely related to um, snake fungal disease there than in another area of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and also there's, um, there, so there's snake fungal disease in Europe, um, but there hasn't really been snake fungal disease documented in South America to this point. It's been documented in China recently. I think they found it on a constrictor species there. Um, I think it's been found in Japan recently, um, but Taiwan. it's not Taiwan. Yeah. Um, but it's not found. It's not ubiquitous geographically. Um, like there are still regions of the world where it hasn't been documented. Which yeah, is... Yeah, possibly just due to lack of detection, like lack of looking for it, yeah, and 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 not like true absence. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting that you guys had mentioned that those photos that we just posted. A lot of them almost seem like uh, some kind of scarring or you know battle wounds from from predation or from fighting off fighting prey in search of food, whatever. And I've seen a lot of animals that in the wild and in captivity that had scars like that. And it's almost like it, you wouldn't even think that it's a fungus. You, does that make sense? And I know that the only time that in my earlier years doing this stuff, the only time that I ever remember people talking about a quote unquote snake fungus, this is way before there was, you know, snake fungal disease was, uh, people that get like water blisters from bad husbandry or, you know, snakes that need to be a little more arid and they, they've got these sores in their sides and it's clearly from bad husbandry. But I remember vividly that maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of Bushmasters being brought in from Suriname, French Guyana, Guyana. And 
the rule of thumb was you had to keep them at a high humidity, but with no moisture on the ground. And people would say, well, how do you do that? And, you know, there was different ways of having different gradients with you know multiple um, humid hides and multiple dry hides. And basically what happened is if the if the substrate was too moist, they would get a fungus on their pectoral scales that was like in between each scale. And they used to call it the Bushmaster rot. And basically, if you're if your Bushmaster got that pink fung that pink uh, inf inflamed underbelly, it was toast. It was done. And people would soak it in chlorhexidine. They would put, you know, prescription uh, uh, athlete's foot prescription cream on it and nothing worked And the snake went up passing away. But then there was kind of a lull because people figured out, OK, if I do X, Y and Z, I won't get that that disease. And then out of nowhere, we have snake fungal disease. So I didn't know there was some kind of correlation with that in some regard. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. That's actually the first I've heard of that. And um, because of that, I can't really comment as to what could have been causing that particular disease or if it might be directly related to snake fungal disease. Um, but I can say that one of the things that I talk about often when I give like talks is um, there's a paper that came out in 2012 by a guy named Fisher um, who um, basically showed that over time, the uh, amount of diseases that are caused by um, fungal pathogens in wildlife is actually has been increasing. Um, over the 21st century. Um, and that's something that's worthy of concern, particularly to wildlife biologists, because when you look at the proportion of like different pathogens that caused actual extinction or extirpation in their hosts, like so like fungus versus like viruses or bacteria or like, you know, uh, helminths, like worms, things like that, um, fungi disproportionately like by 40% or something like that wow. um, cause way more extinction and extirpation in their hosts than um, other pathogenic organisms do. Wow. So. Yeah, is that and, just from the lack of building up sort of an immunity to it, like they would with viruses and, and bacteria? Is it? Yeah, I, it's a great question, um, and one that I don't know. If, I certainly don't have the, a great answer for it, uh, and I'm not sure that as a scientific community we necessarily have a great answer for it. Donnie might have some thoughts on it. I think you're muted. Yeah, you are. Not only do I log on late due to <laughs> mute myself midway through, I also forgot my beer. And I, I'm sitting here watching you guys drink and smoke, and it's really making me jealous. But well, yeah. I, I, I asked Alex, I said, You don't got like a fifth of bourbon in the desk drawer? And he says, No. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I do right here. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, but like, but. I, I was going to speak a little bit more about like the Bushmaster rot uh, side of things like this fungi, like all fungi typically like wetter environments, more humid environments. And this particular fungus uh, has a suite of enzymatic activity. So it's able to produce uh, keratinases and lipases, right? So the skin of snakes is made primarily of keratin and then also a variety of different fatty acids and, and lipids. And so this particular fungus has, specializes on snake skin and probably likes moist conditions. So I could see when you alter the environment for the Bushmaster and you know, end up getting this fungus growing on its, on its scales. It doesn't surprise me all that much. Um, I can imagine, I, I don't know much about snake husbandry, but I can imagine it's probably pretty challenging 
to manage that type in, of environment in general and suppress fungal growth. Um, Some more than others. Yeah. 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 And, I, and yeah. let's, and not to, you know, say that chlorhexidine is the end all be all, but it really does wonders for as weak as it is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even with some of the, just the, the, I don't want to say normal mold, but like some of the white fluffy stuff that you get with some of the bioactive enclosures or, mm-hmm. you know, old, old rotten oak leaves. We love using oak leaves and enclosures. And, you know, before you know it, if there's not good ventilation, you got white fuzz and some people have, you know, uh, uh, macroscopic organisms to take care of it. Other people, you just squirt a little chlorhex on it, and boom, you're you're, you're in business. Well, you until you have more spores growing in my dart frog cages. Sometimes, yeah, there you go. Would you know? pop mm-hmm. up, and then they'd hang out for a little bit, and then they disappear, and then a couple yeah. more would pop up, and then they disappear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, but it mm-hmm. is it is challenging with something like those bushmasters because you you have a, a baby pit viper that is extremely stress prone, and you're trying to leave it alone and give it the best husbandry you can, but it took a lot of guys and gals, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of losses to learn that that different humidity gradient with with those with those specific animals. So, huh. that is interesting. Yeah, not surprising. I can imagine you probably. You know, go ahead. Say it's just it's a fine. You know, I was going to say like I can imagine like if if you're getting the. I guess I'm surprised at the fungus being present in an enclosure in the first place, unless it came with the animal. Um, we think that this fungus is capable of surviving in substrate, and there are some some documented instances uh, from our lab showing that it does survive in the soil. Um, there's another recent documented instance showing that it survives in hibernaculum soil. And then a variety of like petri plate tests showing that the fungus can grow in soil substrates. But like, I don't know. I just think like if you're building a high, if you're building an enclosure, either the fungus is coming with the snake, which is most likely, I'd say, or alternatively, you're scooping soil or building like an, an, a natural habitat from oak leaves and stuff like that. And you're bringing the fungus oh, in, yeah. which seems to me mm-hmm. to be much less likely well the, most of us back in those days i mean even still today let's be real let's be frank we use cypress bags of cypress mulch that we buy from home depot and some people are a little more mm. neurotic than others and they'll bake it on a cookie sheet in the oven at you know 200 for however long they do it um and then other people honestly like myself for the longest time i just dumped it in the enclosure and not realizing that you have this extremely humid festering bag of slowly decaying wood you know and sometimes there'd be bugs in there sometimes there would be straight up mold in there you know and you throw a couple of those pieces out and you you scoop out that top layer spray some chlorhexidine and keep on trucking and i feel like it goes back to uh, us not knowing the cross-contamination that we were doing back in the day you know we just we were we didn't know so and then at the same time you have these animals like these bushmasters that were coming from an animal exporter in suriname where they're keeping, you know, birds, turtles, amphibians, snakes, mammals, all in the same warehouse, you know, and who knows, this could be, you know, a, 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 something that comes from bat guano for all we know, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the thermal maximum of this fungus is about 35 degrees Celsius. So if you're baking, you're probably not a bad idea. 
That's good. And That's good have to know. you, knowing that, have you exposed animals that are infected with it for an extended period of time to see if that knocks a lot of it out? That was kind of what we were attempting to do with thermal gradient, like giving them a range of temperatures uh, and letting them see um, where they chose to bask. I I remember correctly. I'm pretty sure I did. They didn't weren't choosing like the hottest temperature every time or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm almost positive that was the case because I I'm pretty sure I'd remember if they were all glued to one side of the enclosure um, throughout the experiment. Um, that is the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Um sidecar to this is the fungus that we're speaking about forgive me for not remembering the actual species but uh-huh. is it i don't want to say endemic to snakes or can it be can it does it grow on other things can it live on other things i mean yes it let's say the spores are are, are you know dormant in pieces of damp rotting cypress mulch right and now all of a sudden it's been waiting for the perfect opportunity to hop on that garter snake or is it still growing? It just isn't growing as well, or it's not producing spores as well as if it was on a living host. Yeah, that's a, a great series of questions. Um, so it definitely can grow um, on in soil. Uh, so our lab is founded on soil. We have lo- went looking basically for its DNA. Um, and then other labs have also found, for example, that it's more prevalent inside of snake hibernacula in the soil than like in the soil right outside of snake hibernacula. Um, so it grows in soil, but um, my guess would be that it grows in soil more as um, it's a reservoir. It's uh, looking for a host and kind of just maintaining there rather than that being a primary means by which it maintains itself on the landscape. Um, it seems to, on the landscape, basically only affect, affect snakes. Uh, I don't know of any um, records of it infecting something other than a snake on the landscape. Actually, so... At MSA, uh, the Mycological Society of America conference, we just saw a poster showing that it can grow on lizard. I can't remember which species of lizard, but it it was an inoculation experiment and not a natural. Right. Um, That's what I was going to say. Yeah, Yeah, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It doesn't, as far as I know, as far as I've seen, it's never been reported to uh, infect anything but a snake on the landscape. But um, at the Mycological Society of America, someone demonstrated that they were able to experimentally infect bearded dragons with it. Um, but, you know, bearded dragons haven't been exported from Australia since um, you guys would know better than I would. But it's been probably 20 or 30 years now. Yeah, the, the late 80s. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it's probably not the best necessarily model organism because of the fact that they're, um, you know, they're in relatively inbred in captivity at this point. Uh, and just because you can induce something in a uh, laboratory conditions doesn't necessarily mean that it's taking place uh, in a landscape. So uh, it can be done, but whether it's actually occurring in nature is another question. Yeah. Yeah, we've done some microscopic work with the fungus, like looked at what it's actually doing in soil and haven't documented sporulation. We can see so like the vegetative state of a fungus is called like the hyphae or the mycelium. And so it's growing. It's like that white fluffy stuff that you see sometimes in your enclosures. Mm-hmm. It's growing and extending throughout the, you know, the soil, but we haven't seen documented sporulation of the fungus. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's tough to say um, whether it's hanging out in 
you know, in dormancy waiting to colonize something that's enriched in keratin and, and lipids, or um, if it's just kind of living and surviving like at a low level on reptile skin um, is, yeah, it's, I think we just don't quite know yet. Yeah. Is it affecting immunocompromised snakes more so than sort of normal, healthier snakes that aren't struggling? Like, do you notice a, a serious, a much more serious case with snakes that are already having issues, you know, uh, immune system wise? Do you know of a study like that? I don't. Yeah. I guess it's, be... it's hard to ask because like, mm -hmm. We know that there's a response to viruses and bacteria and stuff, but as far as like fungi goes, like I don't, I don't really know how the body reacts to that. I know like we get toe fungus, we throw some mm -hmm. lotrimin on it, no big deal, whatever, it's gone. But I don't yeah. know if there's a similar reaction from the immune system to something like that. Yeah, to be honest, I, I think there are similar reactions in, in snakes um, to fungi compared to like viruses or bacteria. But um, I don't know of a study that's in, uh, that has investigated that specifically. Uh, yeah, I imagine it'd be difficult because you'd have to take, uh, you'd essentially need a, a, an extremely healthy animal, and then you also, or animals plural, and then you also need uh, some like anemic stuff. Uh, and I, I imagine that would be quite difficult to, to yeah. reproduce, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It, I can think of um, like at a population level, um, some things that might be relevant. So, uh, one concept that's um, talked about in conservation biology is um, the extinction vortex. And so this kind of ties back to um, one of the original kind of reports of snake fungal disease of timber rattlesnakes before it was even really known that it was snake fungal disease. In fact, in this paper, they weren't even able to determine what the fungus was, but now it's kind of commonly accepted that it may have been snake fungal disease just based on the timing and the symptomology and things like that. Um, and this was in um, New Hampshire, I want to say. Uh, I'd have to double check the exact state, yeah, but it's correct. definitely that's okay. correct. Yeah. Um, and so this was the last remaining population there. Um, it was a year that had very high rainfall. And also this population was already known to have low genetic diversity because of the fact that it had been reduced to a low level. Um, and so all of these factors together is what was assumed, or was hypothesized to um, cause this like one particular year where um, this fungus caused a decline around 50% um, in this population. And so that's where you get this like vortex effect of like the population is already declining. There are several factors that make it vulnerable. And then a disease kind of comes in because the population is already um, unstable or suffering as a result of these other effects. And one thing to kind of keep in mind is that if you have a contiguous landscape, um, so, you know, one of the things you're talking about with bush mite masters is this disease is that like, if they don't have a gradient then they have a harder time responding to bushmaster rot. And if you cut up a landscape and you fragment it, you degrade different habitat types that are available within that matrix, wild animals are losing availability to kind of uh, remediate or respond to disease in the same way that if you provide like a captive animal, um, less in options in their enclosure, they also aren't able to um, remediate diseases effectively. Um, so that's another aspect where it's like, yeah. as you degrade a landscape, your um, populations aren't able to respond as effectively. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. The uh, You had mentioned that they were taking, or you guys were taking, I don't want to say, so, for lack of a better word, soil samples from the hibernaculum. Were there, 
I don't know if you'd want to even call it a hibernacrum if there's no animal, you know, hibernating in there. But if you, when you guys did this, was there ever samples taken from what may have looked to be like, you know, when you're herping and you find like, oh, there's going to be something right underneath this log and there's nothing there. Did you still take soil samples? Was there, uh, is it only found in, you know, dens or hibernaculums or, or, or rotten logs, whatever you want to call it, that had inhabitants? Or is it, do you just check everything? Sorry if that was a little space kiddity there for a nope. second. You're fine. <laughs> no. We're very simple people. No. No. We have simple questions. Yeah, so we actually did not conduct the, the Hibernacula soil reservoir study. Um, that was another lab, but um, our lab did conduct a study uh, where it was a widespread landscape study. And Donnie can speak about this more than I can because I was not, this, the study was conducted before I joined the lab. Um, but at the time, it, one of the questions that was being asked was, um, does the snake microbiome differ from the water and soil microbiome? Because at the time, that was actually an unknown quantity, um, because it could have just been that snakes basically have the same microbiome as the soil. They're hanging out on it all the time. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, we collected soils and water from point capture locations, um, kind of with the thought that if the snake is living in that particular home range and infected with ophidiomyces that maybe it's shedding some of that fungus into its environment and the fungus is colonizing that particular environment. And so you could see a signature of the fungus uh, present in the soil or the water or leaf litter, whatever we were sampling. Um, and we did find several point capture locations, the soils that we basically just kind of swabbed in circles um, and picked up some of the soil, put it into a tube and extracted the DNA and used a, a quantitative PCR test to determine presence or absence, much like um, like the COVID tests um, mm -hmm. that are conducted. Yeah, so um, we did find it in the soils, but we did not find it in the water, which is kind of odd because in the same study we actually, and, and since we've documented that water snakes seem to have a higher prevalence of the fungus um, but we weren't find it in, finding it in like liters of water that were uh, collected, filtered through this really micropore filter, and then DNA extracted from that. So it's, mm. it's kind of interesting and suggests that it prefers to live as a saprophyte or something that's decaying, like dead and decaying material, um, when it's not living on the skin of snakes. Um, although I do think that the enzymatic suite and the host specificity being that it lives and grows and is found most of the time on snakes suggests that it's probably um, pretty typical to snake skin. I think probably more so than the soil environment. Wow. That, very interesting, especially since like Nerodia and, and, and ribbons and garters and that sort of thing, they're so aquatic. It, it, it's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, we see a lot of lesions. I think Alex, you you would probably agree with this. Like, just like being in the field with you, I feel like, I don't know, maybe every fifth snake we came across, we you'd see a lesion, something that was suggestive of a clinical sign of snake fungal disease. Yeah, I feel wow. like that's definitely a fair estimation. It might yeah. be higher than that. But, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Nerodia, same thing with ribbons and, and garters, like ribbons in particular, like out West Tennessee, where you catch them a little bit more often. I'd say, yeah, maybe even one in three or one in four, you'd see yeah. 
that's something. more for Neronia than terrestrial snakes, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, man, it's gonna make me it's gonna make me really check every snake I find now. Because I mean, it's so many times I just chalk it up to oh, it, you know, got a scar because it tried to eat a fish and the fish bit it back, or cats, whatever. Or, yeah, or, mm-hmm. or ba- baby alligators, yeah. turtles, whatever. You know. But, if you're if you're interested in uh, citizen science, or any of the listeners interested in citizen science, they can totally reach out. We routinely send out snake fungal disease sampling kits to all different places across the country. Um, so yeah. that if people are out herping and collecting snakes and they want to do some swabbing and send us in swabs, we're happy to process them. Yeah, absolutely. I would, yeah. I would hundred and ten percent do that. Is that animals that have lesions, don't have lesions, both? All of the above. Yep. Swab any, any snake is, any snake swab is a useful swab. <laughs> oh man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some nights I go out and don't find anything and there's other nights, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find 30 40 water snakes in a night you know yep. so yeah very interesting that's very like carolina herping right what's that i said that's carolina herping for you right? oh, that's south florida oh south florida oh, yeah. oh yeah yeah i'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm way south so okay. i don't find anything so i don't even bother <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i and did I actually... see a dead copperhead on the road the other day though so oh nice what about like dead snakes you stop uh we we salvage dead snakes as well um it's typically for other types of studies and for like educational purposes. Like we routinely host student groups on campus um, from local community colleges. Uh, they come and they'll visit and we'll lay out a bunch of dead snakes that it, we have frozen and we'll, we'll teach them like uh, snake morphology, how to swab snakes. We'll set up a bunch of, bunch of Petri plates and see what microorganisms grow on them and a variety of different things just to teach about snake biology as well as the microbiome and disease ecology uh, as well. Um, so, yeah, we do take dead snakes as well as long as they don't stink. That's, that's like you, you got to yeah. sniff. You got to sniff them before you send them. Well, well, I imagine if it's that far gone that start to get funky, it probably isn't the most conducive to the, to the project. Falling yeah. apart as you're putting it in a bag. Yeah, yeah, you don't want yeah. that. Yeah, when they're flat and when, yeah, when they when when they're yeah when you're peeling them off the pavement, it's probably a bit too late. Yeah. yeah. Now, have you guys seen with any of the control animals or the stuff that you inoculated where it developed the the for lack of a better word, the blisters or whatever, and then through husbandry has righted itself and, you know, has been cured, so to speak? Yeah. So um, we haven't had any control animals that we inoculated that developed. Well, I don't think we ever had a control animal inoculate blisters or develop blisters as a result of our inoculation protocol. Um, but this actually, I was hope, kind of hoping to segue a little bit into this um, when we yeah. start talking about swabbing. Go so our it. lab, you know, we mentioned the fact that we do kind of microbiology of herps and stuff like that. So a lot of, with those swabs, we look at snake fungal disease, but we also look at the uh, microbiome or the bacteria that live on the skin of these animals. Um, and so, for example, uh, with the work that I did over the course of my master's thesis, we brought snakes into captivity and those were animals that um, we were looking at their microbiome for and we did that because we thought it would be most informative to have animals that like had a wild microbiome instead of like you know these were corn snakes that were raised in captivity so 
how informative is it to know like this is how snake fungal disease is affecting the microbiome right. of those right. animals yeah um and so, so even though we initially screened those animals for snake fungal disease a few of our control animals develop snake fungal disease and so we didn't include them in any of our analyses or things like that yeah but the clearing of disease um i don't think we've seen uh, Alex, you could probably speak of this. You're watching these animals day in and day out and, and documenting disease development. But I, I, once you typically give them the fungus, they develop signs that are recognizable as snake fungal disease and don't seem to clear it up. Um, it's been shown, like even on the landscape, like oftentimes in, in our work and others' work, you swab for snake fungal disease and the animal looks perfectly healthy but it will have a signature of the fungus being present. Um, and so I don't know if that's just like long-term infection and it's just persisting um, at a level that's undetectable by the eye, or perhaps maybe it's like subcutaneous, like beneath the layer that, yeah. you know, you might be able to detect um, with the eye and you're actually getting at it using that swab or, or something you know, that we just, don't yet understand which is equally likely and do the blisters have any hand in spreading more of the spores like do the blisters have some sort of physical advantage to to carrying it on more is that a reason that they're there yeah yeah the fungus does sporulate on necro on dying dead necrotic tissue yeah okay. it does mm-hmm yeah, oftentimes, like if you look at some of the literature, some of the pictures that you were showing earlier, um, you can see the fungus uh, producing these um, conidia or asexual spores and some of like the histopathology uh, images, like the, 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 it's like thin slices of tissue and you can, and they typically, researchers typically stain the tissue and you can actually see um, some of the spores being produced and the hyphae growing through the tissue. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Not stuff that we do in the lab, but um, it makes for some really nice images. Yeah. yeah it's incredible. Yeah. And understanding so, what the. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go on. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, just kind of understanding like the biology of infection, like the pathology of the organism as well, like how it um, grows and invades subcutaneous tissue into like deeper parts, more visceral organs and, and whatnot. You can see with those really nice histopathology images. Nice. So my question is, have you noticed in your captive animals that have it an increase in shedding at all? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask too. So I'm curious about that. Well, this is all Alex. This was all his idea. He had this really, really cool <laughs> idea. He came to me one day. He's like, you know what? I went home after, after being in the lab today. I drank a ton of coffee and I sat in front of a whiteboard for I don't even know how many hours. And he had this awesome idea and laid out an entire study for me. And I just said, that's a, a fantastic idea. You should do that for your masters. So he can <laughs> tell you about that. That's like part two of his master's that he's still working to publish right now. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that is on the back burner just because we didn't get a ton of samples from it, but um, it, it will get out at some point. But um, one of the things that I became interested in, so we, Donnie was talking about this histopathological images and um, there's one in particular that's really cool where you can see 
Um, there's like a layer of uh, snake sh skin that's about to be shed. And then there's the new layer that's about to come in. And you can actually see the fungus uh, proliferating from the top layer into the new layer. So even though it's about to be shed, there's going to be remnants of it in that new uh, skin that's going to be retained. Um, and that got me thinking about like, how does shedding affect this process? Like, and also how does shedding affect the microbiome? Because when the snake sheds all that skin, like where do the microbes go? Um, and so I um, wanted to basically understand as the snake sheds its skin, are there any microbes left or does it shed its microbiome every time it sheds its skin? Um, and that was a bad idea to suggest to Donnie because it meant that to actually sample that, I had to be there when a snake sheds its skin. And you guys know from keeping snakes that you see that maybe, you know, even if you have a lot of snakes, you see that really only every once in a while. Uh, and so the way I decided I was going to study that was just to have me and then another undergrad there um, basically all the time, always watching them, uh, waiting for snakes to shed. Um, but one thing that was cool that we found out by doing that is, so I'd be in there with a red light going through every like 15 or 30 minutes looking at them. You should, uh, you should, you should describe your lifestyle change. <laughs> well, I went from being a normal working human to someone who lived only like, you know, between the hours of, I don't know, like eight o'clock at night and six o'clock in the morning. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was, that was my life. Just being up in the middle of the night, walking through a dark room full of, 24 snakes with a red light waiting for them to shed. Um, and, uh, it, but when snakes finally started to shed during the study, they would only shed during the day, like never when I was there. Uh, and I was like, this is absurd. And by big like, middle finger to your whole, uh, your whole plan. <laughs> right. and by the third or fourth, but there was an undergrad there to sample it. So we were getting the samples, but it was just that it, it was like when I was never there. And eventually I, I thought about it and I was like, I think the reason they're shedding during the day is because they're freaked out by me coming around with the red light at night. <laughs> and when they're during the day, they feel more chill because there's just someone sitting in their room. So by the end of the experiment, we took the cages of snakes that we knew were in pre-shed, you know, because they had cloudy eyes and stuff like that. And we put red lights on either end of it and set them to automatically flick on and flick off every 30 minutes. And sure shit, those snakes also shed during the day. And to realize that you're like how many hours of your life could have been replaced with like $30 of the hardware from Home Depot is <laughs> pretty hard hitting. Uh, oh, that's but, rough. Yeah. Science. Uh, science. Yeah, right? Yeah. No, no one told you they were diurnal. <laughs> Yeah. well I, I honestly thought they might have shed at night just because you know water snakes and stuff like that you know like if even if the lights weren't there but i published a note on that at least in uh like just a little local herpetology journal um so what we have that data set basically of uh it's like five or six samples of snakes were like as the skin like we and some of them we actually peeled the skin back and was able to sample sample immediately uh, so yeah. we can see like right at the point of a snake shedding, what does the microbiome look like? And also how does that affect snake fungal disease? Mm -hmm. um, and I've done the analysis on the snake fungal disease portion of things and found that we didn't see a significant reduction in um, the amount of pathogen just from a single shedding event. And so uh, other authors have suggested that like, and shown that snakes have these uh, rapid periods of shedding after they get snake fungal disease and that that's probably um, causing the, you know, if snakes clear infection, it's probably because they shed rapidly. Uh, and that would seem to be the case based on the work that I did, where it shows that like 
the snake shedding once doesn't necessarily reduce the amount of fungus that they have probably because it's already grown through that layer. But if they shed maybe two or three times in a rapid period, that might actually do the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I asked about the shedding just because I know, or I've seen, I mean, it's purely anecdotal, but I've noticed if there's snakes that, that get stuck between tubs and shelves or something, or they get some sort of like damage, they almost immediately within the same, you know, a handful of days of that happening, they go into a shed cycle. Like their body is automatically like, I got to fix this. Yeah. Like from a mouse bite. Something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I wondered if that would be almost like a continuous response to that is to constantly go into like shedding and some sort of, again, an immuno uh, response to, to getting rid of it. But I mean, are they even having good sheds at all? If they have it, if it's really bad, are they, is it, is it just an absolute nightmare or is it full complete shed still? I think it depends on how bad it is. Um, if it gets really bad, there's definitely portions of the skin that don't shed well. Uh, and then, you know, they're like um, the portions of the skin that aren't shedding well, you're retaining the fungal tissue from it. And so then it's not really effective. It's not a good mechanism at that point to uh, clear infection. Mm-hmm. Um, but early in infection, it seems to shed pretty well. And you can see uh, like when it sheds, there will be regions that look um, like they have the dermatitis or they have necrotic tissue on them that are shed. Um, and so I think it, sometimes it depends on like how far is the fungus proliferated already, how bad is infection, things like that. Well, we have a, a question in the comments. Our, our good friend Henry the Hen Dog, he specializes in Ophiophagus snakes. And his question is, what happens to a snake that eats a snake with snake fungal disease? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I don't know if there's research on it, but I can give you some anecdotes from the field. Yeah, of uh, course. Which is that Lampropeltis in general do seem to carry a pretty heavy burden for snake fungal disease. Okay. Uh, and that there are a couple of sites that I go to early in the season where the black king snakes always seem to have a lot of snake fungal disease. Um, Interesting. And those well, are sites. It, that- it makes sense because they're you know they're grabbing snakes and they're wrapping them and they're in contact with a lot of surface area of that body that would have it. So that makes that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah, I mean that's not based on any scientific rigor at all. Yeah, an observation. Yeah, it's just an observation. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Excellent. That's a cool thought. Yeah, the thing that I found the most disturbing about it all when I was reading about it um, was just the fact that it was like, yeah, we found it up in the northeast, and then like a couple weeks would pass and be like, oh, they found it out west, and then it'd be, oh, they found it down in Georgia, oh, they found it, you know, in California, and it's like, I'm assuming, I mean, there's no way it would, A, travel that fast, but is it safe to assume that it was just already there and now people were looking for it and so now they're finding it? Yeah, that's what I always thought. I always thought it's it's been there and, and obviously I'm not a scientist, I'm not a field biologist or a field researcher or anything, but it just made sense to me that was uh, maybe human encroachment and you know agricultural runoff and things of these sorts, global warming, whatever you want to call it, is obviously a contributing hand. But it was to my personal opinion that now everyone knows what they're looking for. Right. You know, and the same way that I thought it was a scar or I thought it was, you know, uh, uh, an injury from, you know, wrapping a prey item or something. And, oh, it's just a scar. It'll heal, whatever. And because it's in captivity, it's living a good life. Maybe it didn't have a chance to really do more damage or something. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But now we know what to look for. So 
I don't know. Well, yeah, very similar to the to the sort of the Nido thing where it's like, oh, an animal has a respiratory infection, you know. Okay, it happens. They get them. Like, we noticed that in green trees. Like, yeah, this time of year it gets a respiratory infection. We don't know why. And then once they find out that it's a virus, now it's like, oh, yeah, I tested and I have it. Oh, yeah, I tested I have it. Like, yeah, I got it too. And, like, now that they sort of know what I guess it is they're looking for, and it, it sounds like it's very similar to how it was up in the Northeast when they were originally – seeing these animals coming out of hibernation like this that maybe now that they see and have like they've identified sort of the culprit like now what everyone else is sort of seeing it too and they can sort of pinpoint it and identify it as well yeah i think um one of the things that's you guys raise a great point which is that like all of a sudden people around the country started looking uh and so you can't find if you don't look you know mm -hmm. um and another, like, so we were talking about hibernation blisters a little bit before. Uh, and since then, there's actually been retroactive work to do DNA extraction and then, um, like, keep PCR on some of those hibernation blisters. And it's been found retroactively in museum specimens that, so animals that were collected a long time ago mm -hmm. have aphidiomyces. Um, so that's really good evidence that it wasn't, like, something that was introduced in, like, 2001 and we didn't notice it until 2010. Right. Wow. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's kind of reassuring, yeah. you know, <laughs> in, in a grotesque way. Yeah. Uh, and then there was actually a paper that came out this year um, by a number of people. Um, and that paper showed that um, based on the divergence time of the different clades of aphidiomyces, like we were talking about before in the United States, it suggests that aphidiomyces um, may have been introduced to the United States um, between like 100 and 250 years ago. Um, so it was likely brought from Europeans into uh, America, uh, which is kind of interesting because it still persists in Europe as well. Um, like I was actually just talking to someone who studies um, aphidiomyces and grass snakes in the UK uh, at a conference. And he was telling me that there they all of their grass snakes, I think like 98 percent of the lesions they recorded every one of them or 98 percent of the lesions they recorded were on the ventrum. Uh, which is really unusual. I mean, in the U.S., we get them like all over the body on the yeah. nasal labial pits and vipers, things like that. Uh, whereas in grass snakes, he was saying he basically only gets them on the ventrum of snakes. Um, so there are some little, some differences between um, what it's doing to European snakes and what it's doing to American snakes. Uh, but it seems like, based on recent analyses, that uh, phidiomyces was something that was introduced to America a while ago and is now basically being uh, released as a... Um, more severe disease causing organism, um, probably due to the fact that, you know, there's more habitat fragmentation, there's more agrochemical runoff, um, right. things like that. Things are getting more and more isolated. Right. Oh, yeah. That extinction yeah. vortex that we were talking about. Yeah. 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 You build a highway and you change everything. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that the nature scenes are only ventral, you know, and we see the Nerodia and right. or whatever, it's all over them. There are pit vipers on their head and stuff, but it makes you wonder if it's environmental because of whatever foliage or whatever, you know, microbiology is in the, in the European soil opposed to our soil, vice versa. Did, has anyone ever looked at uh, from those museum specimen jars or what have you, is there any kind of, I don't want to say evolution, but do, do you feel like maybe it is for lack of a better synonym, evolving from something different? Like, could this have been a, a mammalian fungus that has adapted to, well, the mammals are washing themselves, so we'll latch onto a snake. You know, does that sound crazy? 
Well, they're definitely their most recent ancestors were definitely also reptile pathogens because they're nestled within this clade of like um you know fungus that also infect like lizards and things like that like it's kind of a, a clade of specialists on of reptile pathogens um but in the larger taxonomic context they're a member of this group the onigenales which are also pathogenic fungi but it includes they have a much broader suite of hosts taxonomically still infect like some human pathogens are actually related to that clade, things like that. Um, so often, like when people know nothing about snake fungal disease and I'm trying to introduce them to the topic, I'll be like, imagine a really bad athlete's foot and imagine if you got it on your face. Like that's, it's, it's not that far of a jump taxonomically to describe yeah. it that way. Very interesting. I don't understand what the sort of the ecological purpose is of something like that. Because I think about that too with with things like, I don't know, something considerably larger like a gnat. Like we have sand gnats here and they're brutal. And I'm like, aside from feeding tiny spiders and other insects and stuff, like what, why do you exist? Like, what, why are you here? And like with stuff like this, I've just wondered the same thing. It's like, okay, you, you attach yourself to a snake and you get spread somewhere else. And that's kind of it. Now it's like wash, rinse, repeat. So maybe Donnie can answer this. Uh, like what is there what's the purpose of something like that like what what yeah. function does it, does I, it I lost serve? you just a little uh, yeah I lost you a little bit but I think I got the general gist of the question yeah so this fungus is primarily known as an ase it's an asexual fungus um, not producing sexually and so like Alex was saying it definitely specializes in a particular niche and that niche is a keratin rich a keratin rich substrate it grows extremely well on keratin and specializes on keratin and it doesn't need to reproduce sexually there's very little genetic diversity it's happy living and surviving in that particular niche and producing millions and millions of asexual spores to spread into the environment and in the neighboring snake skins because it specializes in that environment. That is its ecological niche. It's happy there. It doesn't need to go anywhere else. Yeah, I, I imagine it's just another one of Mother Nature's, you know, control devices for whether it be population or checks and balances or what have you. And, you know, you throw humans in where we take up so much more, you know, and we were talking about isolation that who knows? Unnatural selection. It is worth keeping in mind that this is, it's basically, it's an, even though it's probably been here for a while, like our native snakes are not really designed to interact with this disease. Um, you know, like, even if it got here 250 years ago in evolutionary time scales, that's still a very brief period of right, time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Good brings point. up a good point. good point. He said, can humans get it on their nails or their hair? Or is that a different sort of time, type of keratin that we're talking about? It hasn't been documented. Not that we know of. Yeah. Phil, we should People try it with your beard. A Let's get someone rubbed mm -hmm. on Phil's beard. Well, I happen. mean, it's interesting. We joking about my beard. God forbid. Um, the uh, <laughs> let's say because we're talking about these gross hypotheticals, I am field herping and I find a pygmy rattlesnake and I throw it in the bucket so that I can tube it and swab it with one of your samples, right? And I do everything kosher. And we're done, and I mail it off, and I let the little bugger go, right? I need to clean that bucket. I need to clean those tubes. I need to wash my hands. 
especially if I'm catching more animals or God forbid, bringing it home to my collection, that cross contamination, I imagine can in the blink of an eye. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a particular method for, especially in a, in a more, I don't want to say sterile because you know your 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 snake room at your house is not exactly the most sterile. But is there a a, a choice way of reducing risk of contamination at home? Yeah, there was a paper that came out in 2016 that looked at the effectiveness of different disinfectants on basically um, preventing um, OO from growing in a petri plate after it had been sprayed. So they would like. Um, create a um, solution that they could use to inoculate plates, just use it, this disinfectant on it, and then see how many new colonies would form after it had been sprayed with this disinfectant. Um, and so uh, they tested like some household cleaners. I think like Simple Green was one of them. Um, they tested chlorhexidine. They, they tested two different bleach concentrations of bleach. And they also tested 70% uh, ethanol. Uh, and to, um, either 5% or 3% bleach or 70% ethanol were your best bets um, with a two-minute contact time. Um, the caveat being with both of those disinfectants that you should use, um, you should make them fresh basically every time you use them because bleach degrades over time and then 70% ethanol can degrade um, as it evaporates. Um, so if, if you really want to be careful, those are what you should be using, but you should be making them fresh whenever you need to disinfect. So if you're going out into the field, if you're going to be wiping down your racks, like if you have a new animal that you're um, quarantining, things like that. Yeah, it's, that's brilliant. It's good. Yeah, and I mean, that's something a lot, a lot of people don't really consider is like the hooks that you carry around your car and you go herping with all the time, like disinfecting those just so you're not yeah. re like introducing other stuff if if not, you know, SFD or something into other populations or pockets, you know? Yeah, yeah. if I could make a plea about that, I mean, just... As, I mean, I, I love field herping. I would encourage people to do it as amateurs. Like if people are interested in doing it as amateurs, I'd certainly say it's not something that like only scientists should be allowed to do because I mean, it gets people interested in the field, of course. Um, but I mean, that's super important because not only is it about things that like we know are out there like chitrid and snake fungal disease, but I mean like RO, like the pentastone worms in Florida, we didn't even really know they were a thing until a few years ago. And there's probably things that are out there right now that we're not even really aware of that are spreading. Mm -hmm. So it's super important that when people go out into the fields, they disinfect properly and that you like spray your, the mud off your boots before you disinfect them, that you scrub. So that way um, what you're disinfecting actually reaches the hard surfaces of whatever you're disinfecting, not just like I sprayed some mud, um, but then there's, there, you know, there was an inch of mud caked on there. So the bottom of it, like who knows that I went and traipsed yeah. the a pool, you know? Yeah. Now, is that something like we were just talking about keeping snake hooks in the car? Like I keep snake hooks in the car. If I'm road cruising and I come across, you know, four rattlesnakes in a night, I'm going to use the same hook. Should I be disinfecting the hook in between each find? Or is it something like, well, I'm on the same road within a three mile span? Ideally, I you should disinfect it between each find just because, you know, you know, depending on whether you're visiting hibernacula and stuff like that, you might know that like different snakes from the same area could be using different hibernacula. They might not necessarily be interacting with each other. If they, even if they're using the same hibernacula, they might leave in spring and not see each other again for four or five months. Um, yeah. So I just feel like it's a best management practice to like disinfect between every animal that you interact with. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Wipe your hands down, have some Lysol wipes, 
yep. wipe your hands down in between animals, yep. spray down your tubes, your bucket, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. anything the animal yeah. touches, if it just in the tubes, disinfect the tube. Like Donnie said, if it goes in a bucket, disinfect mm. the bucket. So that and do it before you leave. So that yeah. way, next time you cruise an animal, you're ready to yeah. pop out and do your thing. Because I know. Yeah. There's no patience when I see an animal on the road. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, you don't have yeah. time. You, yeah, you got, exactly. Yeah, I you got, took someone out for the first time with me on Friday, and they were like, I can't believe how fast you got out of the car. And I was like, yeah. welcome to the show. Like, yeah, it takes, yeah. It takes time to learn and develop this uh, break and throw it into gear. Yeah, or, or don't throw it into gear. Yeah, <laughs> Tell them to grab the wheel. I'm going to jump out. The... Uh, does UV do anything to, to fungal infections like that? Does that have any effect on it like it would bacteria or viruses? Yeah, yeah, you, you can kill the kill fungi with UV light, but I can't imagine you could treat an animal with UV light. I don't yeah, think yeah. that's possible. Um, and I don't think it would be a very effective way to disinfect equipment, um, you know, for mm -hmm. obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, UV light in general is effective at killing both bacteria and fungi given the appropriate length of exposure time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's just, just bizarre, especially uh, considering how, you know, it just it seems like it popped up everywhere all at once. Yep. Yeah, I think it's uh, once people start looking, I think it's going to mm -hmm. pop up more and more. I was yeah. just on the on the phone today with uh, Ryan Hanscom out at San Diego State, and he's telling me he's out in Nebraska looking in um, rattlesnake hibernacula, and as the animals were emerging, and many of them were coming out with signs clinical of or clinical signs typical of snake fungal disease. Really? Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it's been documented in Nebraska yet either. Not that I recall. Yeah. Um, the Southwest is yeah. kind of a black hole for snake fungal disease. I know Nebraska is more Northern, but I just feel like mm -hmm. in the Midwest in general, it hasn't been reported a lot in that, mm -hmm. what would that be, um, longitude, I guess. Yeah. 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 I guess it's not necessarily temperature sensitive if they're finding it, you know, up in the Northeast. Yeah. Have they done any studies there as far as uh, like cold being more effective than heat or anything like that? Like, can it survive freezing temperatures? I mean, if it's in a hibernaculum, that's not, it's going to be slightly warmer than whatever it is outside, but does it go? Well, we, we freeze the fungus to negative 80 degrees Celsius and then we can grow it again, but it's using a pretty specialized technique. Um, when we do that, but yeah, it, it has a pretty broad thermal range. I think it grows up to approximately 35 degrees Celsius and down, I can imagine to pretty close to freezing. It'll probably still grow. Um, but I'd anticipate it being able to persist a freezing event. So it, going back to like our buddy Henry that has a little multiple chest freezers full of dead snakes to feed other snakes, if he has something, say, below zero for 90 days, do you think that would be considerably safe or there should be other precautions to be taken? Oh, I don't I don't know if I 
I don't know if I feel qualified to answer that yeah, fair question. Enough. You, said, you said enough right there, sir. Yeah, I mean, do, duly noted. Do, do, yeah, yeah. I, I do think that you'd be able to detect the fungus. Almost, you'd definitely be able to detect the fungus if it were present on those dead snakes. Whether it be viable or not is another question. It's kind of mm -hmm. a cool, cool idea, cool little yeah. study that an undergraduate or maybe even master's student could do. Yeah. Well, that's a, I guess that's another good question is does it if if it is on a snake and that snake dies do you see a larger sort of batch of it on a dead snake because now it doesn't have that immune system at least fighting back a little bit do you see it more prevalent in dead snakes than than the live ones hmm. I don't know if we find many dead I, I don't think I've ever found a dead snake and then sampled it like with that thought, like it died recently from snake fungal disease and now the fungus is mm -hmm. colonizing it as like a, like a decay fungus instead yeah. of as like a pathogen. But it, that's an interesting thought. Yeah. I don't know what you think, Alex. I don't know. I think it's an interesting thought for sure. I'd, I'd be curious to see if there's like a tipping point, like mm -hmm. recently after death, it's like now the fungus is like, you know, bouncer left the party like let's go nuts but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah but for my thought would be that um it can't compete at after a certain point my thought would be that there are organisms that are better at decaying a dead snake than an or because you got to figure it's got to be somewhat specialized to be able to do it while the snake's alive yeah um, yeah i would agree yeah at that point it's probably the opportunist party more yeah. so than ophidiomyces do they notice any difference with like timber rattlers, for example, do they seem to get it more in certain areas uh, in comparison to like colubrids? Cause it seems like a lot of the pictures I've seen of, of colubrids, like they seem to get it really bad in the, the face and the eyes. And then with timbers from what I've seen, which isn't a ton, uh, it seems like a much sort of not necessarily milder, but the, it just doesn't seem to look as extreme as I've seen on some, some colubrids. Is there any correlation there? Is it? Yeah. I mean, it seems like the vipers get it pretty bad in the face as well, uh, especially because it seems like they also get it around their nasal labial pits a lot, um, which is something I've wondered. Is it just because it's like a warm, humid opening mm -hmm. in their face, which might be conducive to the fungal growth? Um, but yeah, I remember um, from the inoculation trial that they did with cotton mouths. I think the only uh, thing that they were able to show uh, increased over time in terms of clinical science was um, facial swelling, um, but they didn't necessarily see an increase in um, some of the other clinical signs that they were looking to measure. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's just bizarre. Yeah. It's super interesting. It makes you, makes you wonder if, if it is spread through, specifically in the cases of the, of the bad face the bad face ones if it's spread because the animal is i don't want to say excavating with its muzzle or touching its body with its, it's muzzle. going face first and everything yeah, yeah yeah i mean but I, I just think of kind of like how dogs always get injured on their nose because of that because they're always putting their face into stuff you know i don't know yeah that's an interesting point. 
Has it led to anything like stomatitis or other sort of secondary issues like mouth rot or anything internally, like in the mouth itself? Do they have they done any studies on that? I think when they've done some um, necropsies on in, in inoculation trials, they've shown that there have been pockets of bacterial growth associated with the lesions. Um, so like if you take a lesion, you know, they, there's actual bacterial like um, growth associated with it. Um, now, should I talk about some of the results that are associated with our um, uh, like statewide data set or should I kind of? Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah. Go um, for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when I was at a conference recently, one of the things that um, I, people were talking a lot about is co-infection in um, other reptile diseases. So like chitrid and things like that, uh, which got me thinking about whether snake fungal disease might have co-infecting um, pathogens. And so uh, I recently ran an analysis on all of our point captures from snakes across Tennessee and basically found that um, snakes were, they had higher staphylococcus um, in their um, mm -hmm. microbiome than snakes that didn't. And if you look at snakes as their amount of snake fungal disease increases in terms of like the amount of DNA that we measure, the we're more likely to record the snake having staphylococcus in their microbiome than not. Um, and that was also the case with the bacteria known as Nicardia, um, which can also co-infect. Um, so for example, with white nose syndrome in bats. Um, so those are two potential um, like co-infecting bacteria um, that may be um, occurring in the snake fungal disease system. So yeah, you've got this animal that's got a, a, an atrocious, you know, skin fungus, and then you're adding the compromised immune system and staff. It's 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 screwed. Yeah, <laughs> to, say, to say the least. Yeah. Bad day. Oh, poor guys, man. But that staff is in those same lesions, like those same infected areas, those same pockets, or is that, that would be systematic. We can't say that. Um, all we can say. So this is based on analysis of microbiome data. So all we can say is we measure it the DNA of the microbes that were oh, there okay. um, and that this is the case with the, kind of the DNA markers that we measured. Mm -hmm. And then that was a separate study where they showed that there were bacterial lesions. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't venture so far as to say like those lesions are composed exclusively of staff or anything like that. Um, that would be interesting for someone to follow up and kind of look at the composition of those lesions through time. Um, but I do think that those results suggest that um, uh, the dis development of diseases at least facilitating um, the kind of uh, increase or uh, enrichment of staphylococcus in the snake microbiome. And at this point, it's correlative. Yeah. yeah. Correlative, yeah. but an interesting trend, totally worth pursuing yeah. in the future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Super yeah. interesting. And now, that's something just in general that I, I like, I'm a firm believer in, in learning about snake systems and how they work you know uh, like anatomy and things that that you would think would be i guess fairly common practice with a lot of other groups of animals and people that keep them but like the immune system like i feel like there's so much about snakes and reptiles in general when it comes to that kind of stuff that i am i don't know that i really want to know but i don't know that there's a ton of information out there as far as like how an immune system in a in a reptile operates differently from you know mammals or other things like that. Cause that just makes me wonder, like if they're getting those infections, you know, what is like, what's their blood looking like? Is there, a, you know, a drop in, in oxygen levels there or anything like that? You know, I'm just uh, thinking out loud, but 
like that's the kind of stuff that, that I'm really interested in is like what does it do to the entire system not just you know the skin and, and everything else that's going on but I have the Mater's book and that's about as good of information you can get and it comes to anything veterinary or medical uh, with herbs so I don't know. I'm just constantly trying to find that information and, and learn about it because I'm super curious because I, I feel like I should know how that stuff works, too. Like if you're keeping these things and you're dealing with them, like you should have a, a fairly even yeah. if it's just a basic grasp of, of how they work internally, you know, how how their liver and kidney functions differ from other animals and why they work differently and what they, you know, that's I don't know. Just hey, agreed, man. Agreed. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, since we're talking about uh, a lot of live bearing specimens that you guys have worked with, you know, whether it be, you know, Neurodia or Echistrodon, whatever, have you noticed it transmit to offspring? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we don't, we haven't like taken an animal into the lab and had to give birth or something like that, but there has been a paper um, about some tentative instances of vertical transmission. Um, I think they give three examples and to be honest with you, I don't remember all three of them off the top of my head. Um, but I remember at least one was, I think a king snake where they brought it into captivity or, um, yeah, one was a king snake and eggs actually, uh, where they thought that, um, there was potentially some, uh, growth on the eggs of, mm -hmm. um, the, um, from snake fungal disease. And then I think some of the offspring they found, um, QPCR positives on, um wow yeah the sample sizes were very very small it was just yeah. a few animals but yeah i think antidotal uh yeah. something worth following up on definitely sure. yeah it was essentially three like re reports like these are three yeah. potential instances of um yeah. vertical transmission rather than like a study where here's like we generated for or, like we you know are documenting right. vertical transmission or generated or something like that yeah you don't almost have you to would, what we're gonna say Smitty? hypothetically you would think with all that albumin and stuff coming out of the egg that it would provide some sort of a, a buffer like a a net so to speak you know to where it just traps those those spores and they have a harder time sort of connecting to things and yeah or it's the perfect conduit you know yeah that's it. Yeah. you're literally you could just be smearing it around so to speak mm -hmm. You know, I, th I think it'd be very interesting if you had something like uh, a gravid cottonmouth and, you know, let's say she's hours away from dropping her litter. If you were to put her in a fairly sterile environment and then the minute the baby comes out, you scoop up that little sucker while it's still in the amniotic sac yeah. and separate it oh. and then leave some babies in to be communal with mom. I imagine that you, you would get very unique results regardless of what they were. Well, that makes me wonder how much it hangs out around the vent too. Cause I mean, you think about a lot of the other parasites and, and bacteria and things, uh, you know, the fecal oral route is, is pretty common mode of transmission for a lot of stuff. So I wonder if it's, uh, if the, if the snake fungal disease is any different in that aspect to where it's like, yeah, this is the vent. This is where things get spread the most. This is where I should, I should set up camp and, and hitchhike to be, put somewhere else yeah i just want to um clarify so that um study on uh 
that vertical transmission paper, the Lampropeltis, um, so the king snake did uh, lay eggs and it did have growth on the eggs. That uh, was correct. They're just none of them hatched because of the growth. I just wanted to double check that. Uh, and that is a paper by Stengel et al. from uh, 2019. In case people want to double check that, just since I wasn't didn't have full knowledge of that paper. Very interesting. And it was because of actual snake fungal. It was because of snake fungal disease fungus. It yeah, wasn't I, just that the eggs got moldy. Yeah, I have it pulled up right here. Um, Excellent. So swabs from nine of the 10 eggshells are PCR positive for the fungus and viable OO was recovered from one of the eggs. Hmm. Wow. That's even more scary. <laughs> you know? Wow. You know, microbes are uh, known to be transmitted vertically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mother to offspring. I think snakes are no exception. Yeah. Absolutely wild. Oh, I had a question. Now I forgot it. Tim, I was waiting for Doc to come back. I had to grab a beer. You had to. You had to. <laughs> and, 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 tu and, tu and tuck the kid in. Yeah. Oh, you got to do what you got to do. F yeah, fatherly yeah. duties, man. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, I remember now. So over the past, say, two, three years, there's been many, many advancements, mostly thanks to our good friend, Dr. Zach Lofman from West Liberty University on cryptosporidium transmission and prevention. And one thing is fard flies. And has there been any documented cases of forage flies cross-contaminating? Being vectors. Yeah, being vectors. That I, I, yeah. I wouldn't doubt it for a second, though, honestly. Yeah, I, I imagine it would be super easy. Yeah. I, I haven't read that work, but uh, the fungus is known to grow on insect exoskeletons and yeah. fish scales and a variety of other substrates but I, i'm actually not familiar what what type of flies are they F forward flies yeah they're um, very very similar to fruit flies but bigger. they okay they're, they're much bigger they're less they're less prone to actually fly they're more of a, a walking fly if that makes sense um and, and anybody also, they prefer dead stuff over they're not like a fruit like right. they grow on decaying yeah most stuff. Most people get forward flies, first of all, mostly in Florida and the south, but they inhabit your drains. And, you know, the elbow and the drain, it gets uh, all that, okay. that, that human funk in the elbow of the drain, mm -hmm. and the flies live in there. Well, a lot of people, if you drain all your drains or you try and keep your bathroom clean, you really don't ever see them. Most people don't even know they exist. They may mm. see one in their kitchen, you know, in summertime and they think, oh, it's a fruit fly. I left the apple out or something when in actuality it's not. It's the forward fly. Well, in snakes, we see them all too often because of snake poo, but mostly it's uh, either regurgitated prey items or a prey item that was, you know, not eaten or the animal killed it, left it. And then, you know, you forgot about it because you're not paying attention to everything. And all of a sudden it's been 24 hours. And now it's starting to smell a little ripe. And then boom, now you get these little flies walking around everywhere. And they go from cage to cage, spreading. And they go their, from cage to cage. Favors. They go from room to room, spreading party huh. favors. Huh. Yeah. yeah Protozoan for the full major, family. Major, major vector for crypto. Yeah. yeah, I think y'all are going to leave us with a number of ideas to follow up on in the <laughs> laboratory. <laughs> oh, man. 
Which we, like, we try uh, to have Arm- some Armageddon. We're not going to send up actual astronauts. We're just going to get the yeah. oil worker guys to go up there and do it. And do yeah, it exactly. <laughs> well, I tell you, man, I, I had I had forward flies this past winter, and it was brutal. And I could, and it wasn't even from the snakes. It was the drain. And I found out that they're doing construction in my neighborhood on the other side of the neighborhood, and they were like purging sewer lines and like oh, putting in no. fire hydrants, and just somehow they got up in there and it took me it took me a good month of like diligent drain cleaning to get rid of those little suckers i am convinced those little electronic catchies that i bought for my room yeah are like the number one preventative measure for those little bastards because i believe it i won't even see flies in my room like fruit flies anything i won't see any but i put that catchy in there those pads are covered in like two days Oh, I don't man. ever see flies. It's just, it's bizarre. They just Are show you up. using the ribbons? No. So it's this little unit that you plug into your wall. It's got a little fan and it's got a UV light on it to attract them. And then really? it basically sucks them in. And there's a sticky pad that, that goes in the very bottom of it. And it just shoots them onto that pad and it just collects them like crazy. But wow. it works like a million bucks, man. It's like, I bought two of them. I got two in my room and I'll run them pretty much 24 seven and just change out the pads periodically. But that is, I guess that's actually, that might be, a good good method to collect some uh some bodies to, to test yeah yeah absolutely more than enough on there mm-hmm. yeah I, I imagine that uh uh forward flies could really do a hurting if there was some kind of you know fungal disease in a collection or you know and th- th- that's the problem too is you you know someone like myself that i have multiple rooms for quarantine right and the i gotta make sure that if i see flies in one room like I got to get the fly strip and, you know, start cleaning stuff out. And I, I have different tools for different rooms because I don't want cross-contamination because that little bugger, he could go in one drain, come out your air vent on the other side of the house, and you'd never know. And it's it's scary. I mean, I don't want to live in fear. I don't want other people to live in fear. But, uh, but yeah, I imagine it, it, it could probably put a hurt on something. Yeah. Well, that got morbid quick. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Just the, the cogs are turning, you know. Yeah, yeah totally. Uh, uh-uh. So, what's the next step for you guys in this regard? Yeah. Um, well, Alex has different next steps than I do. Alex is going to go on and pursue a PhD. Uh, yeah. In another, yeah, in another laboratory, he's going to turn out to be, a, well, mm. he's already a fantastic scientist, but yeah, he's going to go on and lead a laboratory elsewhere uh, at some point, and maybe we'll continue Excellent. to study snake fungal disease together in the future. Um, but for my laboratory, we are actively recruiting um, students at the master's, PhD, and postdoctoral level to study snake fungal disease. Uh, we're interested in linking field studies to lab, lab-based lab live animal studies to what we call like synthetic microbiome studies. So what we're doing now most recently is using these really cool controlled experiments that we can run in 96 well plates where we can attempt to mimic like the composition of the snake skin using like keratin, fat, variety of different fatty acids and lipids. We can try to mimic snake skin in a liquid medium, and then we can introduce 
Ophidiomyces to a variety of different bacteria and see how they interact on this medium that mimics the snake skin. So we're That's really awesome. trying to, yeah, yeah. So we're really trying to kind of link what we see, the patterns that we see at broad scales in the field to live animal studies in the laboratory, all the way down to these really tightly controlled um, laboratory experiments in, in Petri plates, more or less, or 96 well plates just to improve uh, the ability of replication, just to understand how bacteria and fungi interact in, in these simplified experiments. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. It's awesome. Yeah, we're interested in it from like a theoretical standpoint. We're interested in it from, you know, fundamental science, perhaps learning how um, different bacteria may suppress the fungus uh, from growing uh, a variety, which is more applied if you're thinking about like bioaugmentation, like changing the snakeskin microbiome to attempt to fight off Ophidiomyces, put it very generally, um, you know, for different like breeding and um, reintroduction type programs. Um, but yeah, we're interested in it from theoretical, fundamental to applied uh, sciences, just understanding how bacteria and fungi interact on animal skins and also inside of uh, the gut of different reptiles and amphibians. Wow. Are there microbes that eat the spores, like predatory type? Oh, I'm sure there are, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure there's probably a variety of different protists that eat spores. I'm sure that there are or not. I'm sure there are definitely fungi that parasitize other fungi. I'm sure mm -hmm. bacteria probably live and grow on um, on the fungus uh, as well. Um, you know, what, when it's no longer living and growing on the snake skin, right? As it grows and kind of grows across that leading edge and leaves behind dead and decaying cells, I can imagine that bacteria probably live and grow on the fungus itself. Um, I think these are all interesting questions that could be investigated. Yeah, so if either of you guys want to do a PhD in the Walker lab, just send it on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Alex, I mean, how how much of a concern do you think it should be for for private collections? I mean, obviously, if you're buying wild-caught snakes from, like, native U.S. stuff especially, you kind of have a, a higher chance of getting it. But, I mean, in general, is it, it – to me, it doesn't seem like it's something to worry about as much on the level of, like, crypto and other major – you know, serious outbreaks of possible pathogens, but what's your, what's your take on that? I agree with that. I think in general, it's not the most contagious pathogen you could see in the reptile trade, uh, which is fortunate. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that your treatment options are fairly limited if you do have it in your collection. Like, um, so because I work with snake fungal disease so much, like whether I was having it in, um, you know, running experiments with it or just working with it in the field, like, um, I just have a corn snake right now. Like it's not the, you know, most exciting animal collection, but I have always been very concerned. Like, you know, the last thing I want to do one day is come home and see my snake's face swollen and think yeah. like, oh my God, like, am I going to have to like bring him to a vet and try to convince him? Like, listen, you need to nebulize him with Turbofin. Like I know, like, I know you don't know what this is, but I do you know <laughs> what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, so I think it's definitely a concern for people who, and you know, North American snakes definitely have it, but uh, it is also in Europe now. It's in Asia. Um, it's really unknown whether it could be in Australia or South America. So I think in general, people who are buying imports need to generally be on their toes about it. 
Um, you know, it does spread from animal to animal. So even though it's not necessarily the most contagious disease, if it gets into your collection, I think it could be a really bad thing, uh, particularly because uh, treatment options are, um, you know, it takes long-term treatment and it's not an easy thing to treat. Um, and yeah, I, I think it should definitely be on people's radar. And then if for no other reason, then uh, even if it's not necessarily the most pressing concern for captive collections, a lot of people who keep reptiles like to field herb, they're appreciative of wild herbs. And it's definitely something that's present in wild populations. Yeah, that would be the biggest thing too, aside from imported animals or wild caught stuff is like if you're out herp and whatnot, you know, making sure that you're stripping down and, and getting clean before you go into your room or not even go in your room at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like I could see that being a much more plausible uh, happening than, you know, an import necessarily. Like I can, especially, I guess it depends on how much herping you do. You know, if you're yeah. out and about a lot and you're walking around and stuff, uh, and then you decide to just walk into your room and clean some stuff or whatever, then you're just, you're one giant vector yourself. Yeah. Or, I mean, in, in the case of myself, I mean, there was a good time where I was, I was trying to, you know, work with as many Florida native stuff as I could. And I wound up keeping several animals and I would literally bring it right home. And unfortunately, because of Florida laws, I am not, I mean, I'm not, not, I'm not not allowed to, but during my current situation, I cannot have a venomous quarantine. So aside from it being on the other side of the room in its own isolated enclosures, when I take a pygmy rattlesnake home, it's in the same room, you know? So obviously if there's something visually wrong with the animal, I won't keep it. But, you know, if, if who, how do I know it's not there, you know, dormant or whatever. So it's a good point. Very good point. Especially stuff with crazy, you know, a lot more heavy patterning and contrast and stuff where maybe seeing some of those skin or abnormalities, especially something you're not hands on with, it might be, might be harder to catch. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when they're so small, like pygmies are. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, and they're so keeled and uh, so, such a dynamic pattern on such a keeled animal that, you know, and not to mention, we, we always joke about jungle skin. Like, it yeah. takes at least four or five sheds before that animal looks like it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So just need to be observant. Those Fiji on bottles come in handy. You can get that magnifying glass out, buddy. Dude, I've done it. I do it every time. Yeah. <laughs> every time. So... Fiji bottles are the pygmy rattler catch uh, container of, of choice for Phil there. It's a long story. We could talk about it off air. <laughs> so, but yes, Fiji should endorse this show. And bang. <laughs> and, and bang, yes. So, um, well, Smithy, is there any other questions you want to touch base on? I don't think so. I mean, Harry asked, you know, about predatory mites having any interest in, in fungi. Um, and then Billy Jenkins mentioned maybe isopods eating spores or springtails. Uh, springtails, I can definitely see. Yeah. Being yep. a, yep. a, a part of that. And yep. Isopods too, I'm sure. But springtails being as small as they are and the numbers they're in, uh, depending on how, how well you have them built up in an enclosure, you know, I can definitely see those spreading it like crazy. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and I also imagine it would be more of a preventative, but it's not going to cure anything, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would yeah. definitely be my thought. Yeah, yeah. The only way I see predatory mites having any interest in it is they're eating a mite that has it on it. That's true. Uh, Henry also messaged me asking, uh, I'm to assume that this was not done in, in study, but 
He wanted to know the effects of the degradation from cytotoxins as well as hematoxins and myotoxins in an animal that has contracted the disease. So if he's feeding it to an elapid that has predominantly, you know, cyto and myotoxic venom, is the degradation in the GI tract going to essentially kill the fungus? Or is it kind of a moot topic because the snake already had its mouth all over it and it's, yeah. you know, it's there? That would be my thought. I would yeah. assume that it's the process of actually consuming the organism is probably where it's going to be picking up that yeah. action. Um, and that was actually, I meant to mention that before when we were talking about like concerns for people like in husbandry, uh, right. people who do keep ophiophagus snakes would probably mm -hmm. be another one of those people where it should really be on the radar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like eating hot wings. You're going to get sauce in your face. <laughs> you know? Got to got to make it got to make it jovial. Sorry guys. Got to got to make it not so dark. I mean we, yeah. we we wanted you guys to come on and I feel like it's just getting morbid as hell. <laughs> no, I mean that's it's interesting cuz I mean good, it's yeah. something that you got to, you know, got it's a it's a very real consideration for especially yeah. for people that are out in the field a lot. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. <clears throat> well, gentlemen, that, I don't yeah, I don't have anything else. Yeah. I don't know if you do, but No, I mean I I I feel like I went through the little little Rolodex of questions I had in my brain. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess you guys want to pick who goes first. Where can people find you guys? And what's, uh, the, what's the plan moving forward, too, in terms of new information coming out? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So we definitely have um, one paper coming out, uh, hopefully early next year. Um, that is going to be our spatial data set. So on um, the last paper that you saw me um, post on my Instagram about was my um, master's thesis, and that was like an inoculation-based experiment. Uh, so this paper is going to be, we looked at a bunch of snakes across time. It's like 800 snakes over about five years. Um, and so that's kind of looking at like, did we find the same trends that we found in the landscape, in the like live animal experiment on the landscape uh, and so far, we're finding a lot of very similar trends, which is great because that means that, you know, I didn't spend two years on my master's investigating nothing. It's um, good, man. That's real good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Believe me, you're telling me. Um, and then uh, uh, we're also, uh, I need, I'm working on that shedding data set, you know, so um, those are two things that we're plugging away on. And then uh, we're also working on uh, the, the city Alba stuff that um, Donnie, or that we talked about before. Um, so we have some uh, some other stuff coming out about herps if people are interested in kind of just generally that interface of microbiology and herpetology. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah, is you there can... uh, like a single channel where people can can stay up to date with this stuff? Like you guys yeah. have like a Facebook page or a website that. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So if people are interested, my social my Instagram these days is asromer underscore biology. Uh, so I'll, I do post if I like published paper or something like that on there. And then I also post uh, a little bit of like, you know, when I'm out in the field doing photography and that kind of thing. Uh, and then I have a, a research gate where people can just find me with uh, the name that I have here, um, Alexander S. Romer, if people are interested in following you more on the academic side of things. And then Donnie, we do have a lab website, right? Yeah, we have a lab website. Yeah, if you look up uh, the Microbiome Ecology Lab, at Middle Tennessee State University. You should find us or just Google my name, Donald Walker. I know I'm in, um, on the screen as Donnie, but my name is Donald Walker. Um, if you Google me, you'll find 
and, and the word microbe or fungi or whatever, you'll find a bunch of different resources. Um, I have a, a Twitter account. I go by DMW Microbiome. Um, so awesome. I, I do a yeah post a little bit there, but um, not a whole lot. Yeah, we could definitely get the the new papers and we'll throw them up on the the network Facebook page and, uh, and the website awesome. yeah. stuff. Anytime Much you guys got new information that needs yeah. to get out there, let us know because we'll gladly, Much appreciated. gladly throw it up there. So thank you. Yeah, we're trying to get as much exposure as possible. It's important to promote an understanding yeah. about all of this. Hell yeah. Absolutely, Absolutely. awesome. Yeah, well, this was an awesome show. I'm really glad we made it, it happen. It really was. Yeah. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you guys for inviting us. Really appreciate Absolutely. it. Yeah. Hell yeah. The, uh, this episode was brought to you by blackboxcages.com. Check them out. Facebook, Instagram, blackboxcages.com. And Puget Sound Pythons. Check them out. Facebook and Instagram. They, uh, like I said, the beginning of the show should have some stuff available here soon. I know they hatched out a handful of ball pythons and they got some other odds and ends. So hit them up, see what they've got. Um, I think we, I don't know if we're doing THP this coming week or not. I know Chris and I are doing a corn stars episode Wednesday. Um, so that is to be determined, but, uh, CS is definitely happening. Siesta. Sweet. The, uh, THP up in the air. So rock and roll. We'll see. Thank you Love everybody. It. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, guys. And next time Dr. Donnie will be on, he will have some facial hair. Life is going to be good. It won't, it won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, thanks. guys, thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.